What's involved? It is yet another episode. Time always flies, and, and I get to meet and chat to some of the most incredible people. And tonight is just such a person that I'm going to be chatting to. Her name is Luando Claso, and I probably got that wrong, but she said she doesn't mind if I mispronounce it. Luando, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, Luando, you first came to my attention when um, I was sent a book of yours that you'd uh, written to read, and it's called Made in South Africa, a Black Woman's Stories of Rage, Resistance, and Progress. And when this book landed on my desk, and, and I try and make a point of, of, you know, if people are good enough to send me books, this one was from Tracy McDonald Publishers, that I read them. But I, I started to read this book with, Quite a bit of trepidation because I'm from very much, I was born into the apartheid era, the apartheid regime. Um, I've gone through um, in those days when there was a forced military conscription. Uh, I like to think I'm, I'm liberal these days. I like to think I have grown as a person, but still sometimes I get smacked upside the head and reminded that uh, I may not have grown as much as I would have liked to. And then this book. So before we get into the book, Londo, tell me a little bit about you, about your background, and how we got to this book, Made in South Africa. You know, um, it's always a hard question when people say, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, because there's so many strands, and within a limited uh, time, you never know which one to emphasize. But uh, I guess in keeping with the theme of the book, I am South African but I'm a South African who has learned to locate herself within a bigger worldview. You know, um, the cliche term of trying to be a global citizen, of caring about things beyond just our borders. And, uh, you know, I've, um, I was born in Johannesburg and I spent some time in Port Elizabeth before I started school. And then when it was time to start school, uh, I came back to Joburg. And I've been here ever since, um, other than the leaving back and forth, going to school in various places. And uh, Johannesburg is home. I love the chaos of Johannesburg. I love the temple. I love the people. I love how rushed and how outspoken we are. I just love the energy. So definitely I would say Johannesburg um, feels like home. I am an idealist. You know, uh, I believe that ultimately good always triumphs, no matter how long it takes. You know, I believe in making things better, not necessarily perfection. And I believe in the South African project as it was conceived in 1996 and not 1910. So um, I'm just a person who is driven by carrying forward the legacy of ancestors that I respect, the people who came, came before me, the generation that came before me. I have a lot of respect for older people who have lived through different chapters of South Africa's life, who've seen a lot, who've learned a lot. And I love listening to them talk and tell me about their experiences. And I am on the other side of that quite lighthearted um, I love playing pranks on people. I don't have enough time to do that, but um, I'm quite easygoing in a lot of ways. I'm not always thinking about, you know, the constitution and progress and law and those kind of things. I just like 
hanging out with my friends, having good conversation, um, or hanging out with my parents and just uh, tapping into what they're feeling, what they're going through. I love conversation. So another thing I'll say is I was an extrovert when I was young who, was, who then became an introvert. And now I am learning my extrovert ways again and speaking out more and connecting with people more. Fantastic. Now, you, you've got a, a legal background as well. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in the book, I talk, I talk about um, there's a part where I mentioned what's, what inspired me to be a lawyer. So as I said, I was pretty shy as a child, you know. I well, I first started like most children, very extroverted. But then, people, older people, will tell you that that's not in a child's place. Children shouldn't say that or do that and that kind of thing. So I just decided to keep quiet. It's the path of less resistance. And uh, so I became an introvert. And I remember when I was about eleven or twelve. You know, I'm an only child, so I'd come home from school. There are no siblings to play with, so I'd turn on the television after doing my homework. And there was something quite fascinating on television that really changed uh, my idea of what I could be and what I could do. And I was watching a, a real life court trial on CNN and I had no idea who the characters were, but the character that caught my attention in that trial was a woman. Uh, turned out her name is Marsha Clark and it turns out the, tr the trial was that of OJ Simpson. It used to play during the day and I remember being captivated by Marsha Clark, you know, how she worked in the courtroom, the use of her voice, you know, her authority, how she dressed, you know, she looked like power to me. And I remember doing a school project saying, I want to do what this woman does. And I was told she was a prosecutor. She was a lawyer. I'm like, okay, I want to be a lawyer. And I've never diverted from that. I pursued it relentlessly since I was quite young and I became a lawyer. Everything, I mean, all my friends who went to school with me, when they find out, like when we catch up, they're like, oh, so you did end up doing law. It's the least surprising out of all my friends in terms of how we turned out. So I've always known that I wanted to be a lawyer. It started from something superficial, like the O.J. Simpson trial. But as soon as I was, you know, uh, sort of uh, waking up to the realities around me and learning more about our constitutional transition and learning more about people like Nelson Mandela, who were lawyers, who were leaders, and Oliver Tambo and all those people, is that then it became such a deeper meaning of what you know it means to be a lawyer in South Africa and uh, how you can use that as an instrument to expand what freedom means for everyone. So I did my law degree and then I did my articles at Denise Rates, which today is known as, as Norton Rose. I then left because I knew that I wanted to go back to school because I discovered the kind of law that I wanted to specialize in and that was constitutional law. So I did my master's at UCT and I was then fortunate to clock at the Constitutional Court for Edwin Cameron in 2011. And that's when I knew for sure that I want to live my life in service of South Africa in the way that, I mean, it can never match Justice Cameron, but in that same spirit. Which, yeah, <laughs> lofty, lofty ideals and lofty shoes to fill. But you know what? It can be done. And, and, and if I look at, and I'm jumping now because I got so involved with this book, um, but just at, I mean, the foreword uh, was, was written um, by him. And you also, you know, you got Cheryl Carolis in there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's weird that we 
can. And I think it's also very, very good and refreshing that you and I can sit and have this, this conversation about your book, because the book made me, it, it made me feel incredibly bad. It made me feel sad. I laughed at some stages. I cried at others. I was incredibly frustrated. Um, and, and I walked that path along with you because it's divided up into those, those sections because um, it's made in South Africa a black woman's stories of rage, resistance, and progress. If I may yes, quote. Hope, yeah. Yes. No, no, I was going to say. The last part of the book made you feel inspired a little bit. Well, can I tell you, I wanted to quote something from you, if I may, because that's what gave me, gave me hope. And uh, this is something that uh, Wanda wrote, and it's right in the beginning of the book. Being South African is not for the faint-hearted or the fragile. It is a strong and determined state of mind. It is believing in the improbable. It is being challenged and frustrated to your wit's end, but still finding a reason to smile. It is believing that no matter how dark the day the sun will shine again. It has to. South Africa has ballasted, steeled, chiseled, molded, and prepared me for a life of rigor. I am made by South Africa, and I would not choose any differently. Man, that is a powerful piece of writing. Thank you. And it comes from the heart, you know, and I don't take it lightly when I say I wouldn't choose any differently. Because I've seen in the last kind of 10 years where our constitutional democracy has been under strain and people have felt hopeless. And I remember a colleague of mine, a white woman saying to me, you are young enough to emigrate. And I remember looking at her as if she was speaking a different kind of language. I, I just had no idea what she meant. You know, it was one of those tough days where Zuma had fired someone, you know, waking up to the news of, you know, the minister of finance has been replaced or whatever. And um, in response to that, we were both despondent. I mean, if you're, if you're a constitutional lawyer, you're an idealist. You, you believe in, in, in the loftiness you know, of the vision that is set out in the preamble. And when she said to me, you are young enough to emigrate, I was like, no, I, I am the kind of person that if the ship is going down, I'm going down with it, but with a fight, you know, and it's because I choose to. You know, I can choose to immigrate, but I choose to stay. In fact, leaving has never crossed my mind. So I never, you know, the I'm staying movement never resonated with me because it's just not something that I've ever had to contend with. And that when I look at South African history and all that has been, you know, um, all that this country has been through and all the sacrifices of people that I will never know, most of them I'll never know, um, for me, it's like I find pride in being part of that tradition of being in this tug of war, you know, over what South Africa can be, being part of that struggle. A lot of people always look back in history and said, hmm, if I was born in the 1950s or if I was born earlier, would, what kind of role would I have played in the struggle? Well, the question is still relevant today because there's still a struggle. There'll always be a struggle. That's the nature of life. So for me, that part where I say I wouldn't have it any differently, I truly mean that because I can't, for all the good things that I am, that people see in me, I have to credit to this country. And all the bad things, unfortunately, that I am, I also have to credit to this country. And you know, that is so true. And that's one thread that, that you know, is definitely we have in, in common, you and I, because <clears throat> a lot of the people that I've known over the years, 
have immigrated. They've gone, this country's going to the dogs, I'm out of here. Myself and my family, because of our ancestry, we could, we could immigrate. It's never crossed my mind. I've always gone, no, because if I, if I leave, it means that our constitution has failed and the people that wanted to bring the constitution down have won. And I could never, ever tolerate that because I do. I believe we've got one of the best, I believe, one of the best, most robust constitutions in the world. And, and it's something that does still give me hope. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the book when we come back. My special guest is Luando Kaso, and uh, we are chatting to her about her book, Made in South Africa, A Black Woman's Stories of Rage, Resistance and Progress. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Luandu. So let's start at the very beginning, because these, when I say book, it's actually a series of essays in a book form. Um, and you wrote these, what, it was about uh, over an eight-year-old period, hey, uh, between 2013 and, and up to date, up to, up to this year. Uh, so during that time, you were working at the Constitutional Court, weren't you? I had just left the court. I had gone back to uh i'd worked for government a little bit i'd worked for a commission of inquiry for two years and but i started properly properly writing when i went back to private practice which is around 2015 um and you know i was asked to be a regular contributor to the daily maverick and i also wrote for other publications like the sunday independent and the business day and various other outlets. And um, I just thought that, first of all, it was my publisher who approached me to do a book and I was actually putting her on dodge. I didn't, I didn't really want to meet up with her when she first emailed me. But then when I finally uh, said yes and we sat down and she told me her idea, it was like perfect because I've always thought that my first book would be a collection of the work that I've written over the years. And I think for me, it's a good exercise because it gives you some kind of perspective. It gives you some sense of journey and it's just a good reflective exercise on some of the things that a lot of us have endured, you know, in our recent history. And I think sometimes we move so quickly through it, just like the news cycle is so rapid that we barely notice the impact that the events of South Africa have on our psyche and on our bodies. So sitting down and actually looking at some of the older essays and piecing it together with uh, reflections that I've done for each of the essays. And some of them I knew uh, was quite cathartic for me, especially doing all of this during lockdown. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk a bit about, about the book, Luando, because as I said, it's, it's, it's a book that certainly has, has affected me. It's divided into those three sections, as I said. Um, the first one being rage. Talk to me a little bit about rage. I'd, I'd, I'd like us just to touch on some of the, the things in the book, but you know, let's not go too deeply into it because people need to read this. But talk to me about rage. What, what stood out for you um, in terms of, of rage? I think if you've been, you know, if you've been living in this country for as long as we both have been, you've been here much longer, is that there's no way anger or rage is not part of um, your character in a certain way. There's no way that that part of you is not provoked 
by some of the things that happen. And I think rage, what stuck out to me, rage is how I express my compassion. You know, I saw a quote the other day, I can't remember who it's by, but saying that rage is an expression of compassion. And it really resonated with me because it's at moments where I care deeply that I'm the most angered, you know, and there's certain things that have happened, which I detail in the book that uh, left me completely, you know, infuriated. But at the same time, rage is quite exhausting. And there's an article in the book where I talk about I'm tired. I'm tired of saying the same thing. I'm tired of commenting on, on racism. I've run out of words to say. So I've learned that rage is compassion um, and it's care. But I've also learned that the danger with rage is that it can't be chronic. You can't be stuck there. So in as much as rage tells you something is wrong, you need to move to a space where you can think of how you can contribute to solving the problem. So I own, you know, there's a stereotype that black women are angry. That's a stereotype that I own. And I'm not ashamed by that because I really think that black women are very compassionate. And you see that compassion through the, the anger that they express over things that are intolerable or out of the sense of we can do better. Mm. Yeah, there's because there's a couple of those 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 uh, in terms of the rage. The, there's a couple of them that got to me. The soft serve racism, definitely. Um, when you were talking about uh, anger and transformation, and then who is entitled to tell what stories? Because so often, you know, we we think of 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 this 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 racism and this divide as being a purely black and white thing, and yet it's not. Um, it's 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 this. I don't know, people not wanting to understand and embrace the differences in other people because you're Kosa. And, and, and you, you said in that particular one, um, you were discussing the initiation and, and things like that. And not in a way of, this is your background, you know, talk to me so that I can learn some more and understand some more. It was quite confrontational, wasn't it? Yeah, I think the, the um, I read a book called Caste by Isabel Wilkerson, and she really expre- explains um, how, caste sy- the, how the caste system works, which racism forms a part of, you know. She talks about caste as being the bones of the system, and racism is the flesh and blood. So I think the way that caste works, or if you like, the way that racism works, is that it makes everyone an active participant, whether you hate the system or not. So it's one of those things that if you're told you are superior, you can't help but receive that message. It's like when you tell a child that they're smart, they, they try and live up to that. You know, If you tell them that they're not smart, you kind of see them not trying and believing what the world is telling them. So black people are told are inferior and white people are told they're superior, but black people end up believing that they're inferior and white people end up believing that they are superior no matter what their intentions because the world you know, is propped up by the caste system. And I think that with the soft serve racism essay is that in that particular one, it was an, a man of Indian descent who was clearly being the proponent of racism and serving white people before serving me that could be some internalized racism on his side, you know, the acceptance that white people are superior and therefore they need his attention first. It could be born out of fear because of, he was an older man of Indian descent. So 
It could be that the patterns of uh, racism haven't quite uh, dissolved, even though we live in a constitutional democracy. And then in the essay that you talk about, about uh, Kosa initiation, is that when it comes to, you know, uh, the questioning of Kosa initiation, it comes from a lot of directions, not only just from white people, but from other cultures as well, who find it problematic that Kosa people still practice initiation and the, the, the line of questioning has always, has always been about shaming me for being a feminist, for being, you know, um, a believer in God and for being educated and progressive and still identifying and closer in Kosa, I mean, as Kosa in the kind of way that, you know, Kosa is made up of language, culture, practices, ancestry, and so many things that for me, what makes me angry is having to defend who I am and explain it to others. And what I don't do in the essay, I don't betray what my personal feelings are about initiation because I really don't think they have, you know, they have to be explained to anybody else other than my community. Only to say that we are, we are smart enough um, and, and um, you know, we are self-reflective enough to be able to make these decisions you know on our own so i think when a person then uh uses closer initiation as a backdrop to their storytelling and they're not part of the culture and knowing very well that that part of closer culture is actually quite private we don't really talk about it it's in the nature of it but the incessant need of wanting to always expose that you know going against the wishes of closer people for me you know does it does make me angry and I must say, it is a knee-jerk reaction, but that's part of what living in South Africa is like, is that we all have different sensitivities. And when you provoke something in someone, you know, uh, they're not liable in terms of how they're going to react to that because it's so complicated. If the world was even, if there had been no uh, apartheid or colonialism and black and white people had always been equal, and it was within that setting that people were asking me about Kosa initiation, then there's room to, to, to talk there and to actually uh, relate to one another. But because of history, I view that interference or questioning with a lot of suspicion, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. There's just there's so much. This is what's involved. My special guest is Luanda Kaso, and uh, she is the author of Made in South Africa, Black Women's Stories of Rage, Resistance and Progress. We're going to get on to the resistance part when we come back. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Luanda Kaso. Um, Luanda, so the book moves on and we get into the resistance phase of that. Give me some examples of, of, of what you were trying to get across there. You know, I think um, rage is one thing. It's, it's that moment where you're caught up in the emotion, you can't think clearly. And I think resistance is having identified that there's a problem. There's certain ways in which people um, try and change the status quo. They try to live their lives in resistance to the lies that the world tells them. And I think what I was trying to get across is that part of the things that we take for granted in South Africa is actually, you know, um, if I look at, um, for instance, this is the, the section of the book that has the tribute to, to Nelson Mandela. And 
I put it under resistance because I'm resisting the claims that Nelson Mandela was somehow a sellout. And it's my way of setting the record straight that that just logically doesn't make sense. I think there is a way of criticizing someone and their decisions without calling them a sellout. That's just taking it a bit too far and it's unsubstantiated. And I put it there also for another reason, another reason because um, he is a life that really teaches us what resistance is like and resistance takes many forms, right? And if you look at his life, he had about 60 years of being an activist, of being part of the struggle. And each decade of those 60 years, he resisted in what um, the moment called for. So there was peaceful resistance, you know, there was defiance, there was uh, armed resistance, there was negotiating, and then there was uh, actually leading a country and, and a country in transition. So for me, resistance is about how, you know, even if we don't make the kind of progress that we intend to make out, but how the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis is about, um, you know, um, resisting being overtaken by the ills of the world. So one of the personal essays that is in resistance is about uh, Serena Williams. So there are some Americans in this book. There's some Barack Obama, there's Serena, and there's Beyonce. And I think being South African is that you are influenced by the rest of the world and some of the icons that we see. And I talk about Serena Williams because my body has been compared to hers, you know, being a tall black woman who's been quite athletic. And I remember hating myself, you know, physically. And I think part of resistance is me taking pride in my body, me divesting from the value system of the world and what the world considers to be valuable and saying, I no longer want to play you know, uh, according to those rules. I don't care about your rules and what you value. I'm going to create my own world or I'm going to subscribe to a version of the world which I think is supported by the Constitution where I'm valuable being myself. And that's what that essay is about. And then the other one talks about the women of the Constitutional Court and the work that they have done, you know, uh, which for me is is a form of resistance against sexism because a lot of people still think that women should not hold those kind of positions of authority. And also the work that they have done has actually played a role in uh, combating sexism in a legal way in our country by the judgments that they have written. And their mere presence on the court is just a, a, a sign of resistance to some kind of old order where judges or judicious people were seen as white male, elderly, you know, that kind of uh, figure. And when you see these four women that I talk about, they really are on the extreme uh, side of that old vision. So for me, that is a form of resistance that we are a country that has um, created the institutions that we've been created, we've created with the kind of characters that we are now coming to see holding positions of power. And then the other one was, um, you know, uh, I call it the weight of a leader's uh, words. And that was basically in criticism to Zuma. And I felt that uh, President Zuma just never had the words to inspire South Africa. And in so many ways, he was quite self-serving. 
And part of me starting to write during the Zuma years was trying to give myself that kind of inspiration that I was lacking and that I was so used to from my childhood and from President Tabumbegi, who I thought was quite inspirational with words. I mean, he gave us, I'm an African. So I started writing because I felt that void under his presidency. And for me, that writing became my form of resistance. And, and powerful, powerful uh, words indeed some of those are. I, I, have, a, I have a question though, Luanda, and we, we're going to get into, into progress as well. Uh, but deep inside of you, do you believe that it's all going to work out? Do you believe that maybe we can actually be the leaders of this transformation? When I say we, I'm talking about us as South Africans. Yeah, it's funny you asked me that because yesterday I immediately went to exclusive books to buy uh, President Barack Obama's book, A Promised Land, because I knew it was coming out on the 17th and I spent the night reading it and he's basically grappling with this, that same question, you know, and I think that's why in the book I do mention Barack Obama a lot because I sense the same sort of uh, search that I'm going through within a South African context, because a lot of people feel like the America that Barack Obama is fighting for doesn't exist. You know, it's an illusion or it's exceptional in the sense that it is not the prevalent uh, America that the rest of the world sees or some people, especially black people have experienced. And I think it's the same for South Africa. And I think that's why the two countries tend to relate on so many levels. You know, you have the caste system, the racial dynamics and all of that. And um, when I think of, is it all going to work out? I don't believe in, 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 in giving certain answers, answers that, you know, uh, give people certainty I don't think certainty is the point or definitiveness is the point. I think what I can say is that I've seen the best of South Africa and I've seen the kind of conditions we need for us to see the best in South Africa. And I think that if we work towards creating more forgiving conditions for everyone where people can feel like they belong, they can thrive. You know, I always think of the early 2000s and perhaps I'm romanticizing and maybe it was too early in our constitutional democracy, but it felt like there was a lot of investment in South Africa. There was a lot of uh, economic movement, you know, uh, strong leadership and all those things. And we got the announcement that we'd be hosting the rugby, not the rugby, the soccer world cup, I think that was announced in 2003 that we we're going to have the 2010 World Cup. So there was a lot of excitement and growth and people feeling like, okay, I have a place in the system, you know, and I can support myself and I can find dignity in work and all of that. And stories of corruption were there, but they were not as uh, blatant. And I think for me, I can't, I like thinking of the long view, but I can never say for sure that uh, it's all going to work out. I think that is what we're grappling with now. That is what we're struggling with now. And I think by showing up and saying that I want to be part of the struggle, and this is the side that I'm on, if more people took a position 
you know, I was watching Chasing the Sun, the, the World Cup uh, documentary, the Rugby World Cup documentary. And it was really inspiring. You know, some people may call it cheesy or whatever, but that is just a microcosm of what South Africa can be, you know, of people from different backgrounds with a goal. You don't necessarily have to be friends, but you all have to be aligned that there's a certain outcome that you want and you're willing to sacrifice. Some people have to sit on the bench. You know, they can't be the starters. You know, some people are in the audience. They're, they're part of the spectators. And life is not fair in that way. But we all have a, a common goal and we'll each play our part because we want to triumph at the end. And a part of that has to do with serving something bigger than yourself and not, you know, being uh, self-interested all the time and self-involved. So I can say that if more and more people's hearts sort of change in terms of finding inspiration independent of presidents and leaders, but finding it within yourself for your own right, that you can sustain it even in moments where we have a president like Zuma and you understand the power of the people and that we are a kind of nation that will not tolerate that kind of le leadership. And we didn't. I think we made uh, President Zuma's uh, presidency hell up until the moment he resigned. That really gave me so much hope in the same way that Americans are feeling now in that they were able to, in a, in a, in a democratic way, bring down the symbol of division, which is President Trump, and living to fight another day. But does that mean America's problems are over, that there's going to be a happy ending? No one can, can guarantee that. But we can definitely invoke the spirit that it took for us to, uh, to march against Zuma and so many other things that we've marched for in the past, and to channel that towards the bigger vision of actually you know, making South Africa work. I think it's, a, it's an iterative kind of struggle and we each have a role to play. I don't know how it ends. I have hopes in terms of how it ends. Yeah, I think we, I think we all, all have hopes and, and maybe to say we're cautiously optimistic is, is not a bad thing. This is what's involved. My special guest is Luando Caso and uh, we're talking about an incredible book uh, that she's written called Made in South Africa, a black woman's stories of rage, resistance and progress. We'll be wrapping it up with Luando when we come back. And we're back with my special guest, Luando Caso, and uh, we're talking about her book. Uh, we've moved on now in, in the last little uh, section. We were talking a bit about progress. And it's, it's one of those things when we look at our country, at least for me, um, is, you know, we don't see progress. We don't see much progress. And it's very, very easy to, to point fingers and to look at all the things that are wrong with our country. I, for one, am, am feeling fatigued, and, and this COVID-19 hasn't helped at all. I am just so tired. You talk about the struggle and the struggle, you know, continuing, and I'm like, yeah, but sure, you know, um, what part can I play? Can I make a difference anymore? I'm just, I'm tired. I'm done with wanting, you know, it shouldn't have to be like this. And also... I see still to this day between people such a tremendous amount of fear. And I believe it's that fear which gets expressed as anger. What are your thoughts there? You know, one of the things about, um, you know, lockdown and COVID-19 
that really inspired me is uh, I have a friend of mine who has her own, her name is Mpoor, and she runs a food business called Food I Love You. And during lockdown, she opened up a soup kitchen, you know, for the people around uh, her community. And Mpoor is not the only person that has, during this time, made it her business to make sure, you know, that where she can, you know, she will extend herself just to make other people's burden a little bit lighter, just ensuring that they have at least one meal a day, one nutritious meal a day. I've seen countless of those stories, you know, uh, people donating to the COVID-19 fund, people being able to access their patriotism. You know, I work with another creative, Tepo Jeans, and we did a collaboration between the Constitution Health Trust and Tepo to create We the People t-shirts. And as you know, our preamble to the constitution starts with the words, we the people. And they were sold at Woolworths. And to seeing people wear those t-shirts during this time with pride. And, um, you know, just seeing people being able to, um, to, to swerve, you know, um, as life was throwing at us all these unexpected twists and turns and people being able to handle those corners and not just handle them, but see about other people and where they can help. Um, that's really been, and, and some of the creative projects that I have seen spring up at Constitution Hill. You know, we've been working with young creatives, trying to create opportunities for them. Even now, as we speak, Constitution Hill is going is doing a creative uprising um, uh, workshop. Well, it's a whole week. And... Um, these young people, some of them currently don't have jobs, but they are creatives, they have something to give. And finally, there's an opportunity to be able to help Constitution Hill in a creative way and in a way that could be beneficial for them. So there are glimpses of uh, what makes us great. And I try and focus on those. I try and focus on what I can do in my sphere of influence and I think that, um, you know, it's okay to tap out. It's okay to be tired at some point. <laughs> you know, it's okay to sit down and let somebody else go into the game, you know, while you uh, recover. But I think that I believe in a sense of duty. I really do. I really believe that as long as there, there are people who are not free, that we all have work to do. And I think that part of it has to be, you know, um, we have to be self-starters. You need to articulate for yourself what your values are and what kind of world you want to live in. And then on the other column, say what you can do within your sphere of influence to, to make the world just a little bit better, you know. So I think for me, I've seen overwhelming goodness. Otherwise, this country would have completely descended into the abyss if it wasn't for that. If you look outside, if you drive from, you know, Santin to Pretoria, there's still law and order in this country. There's some people that break the law, but overwhelmingly people uh, obey traffic lights. People uh, drive cautiously in consideration of others. The world is moving and flowing in a particular way. There's still services that we get and all those things. And there's certain little things that work, but we take for granted. My garbage bin was collected yesterday on time and all those things. So they, they, there's a way that the world functions that lets me know that most of us are really committed 
to an ordered society and to one where life can be better for all of us. Otherwise, we would have been a failed state, would have been annihilated a long time ago. So there is this tension, you know, between two opposing forces. And I think that the last couple of years for me have proved that those who believe in the vision of the constitution, you know, they're pulling just a little bit stronger. Otherwise, we would descend into complete chaos. And for me, the court is one of the places that uh, give me that inspiration. And it features a lot in the progress part of the book. The court works. And we saw it work even under the President Zuma years, where they were able to block certain things that if they were not blocked, who knows what the consequences would have been. So we've got constitutional uh, instruments, you know, and mechanisms that are working the way that they're supposed to work. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a country to speak of or to fight for. Yep, very, very true. Luanda, I, I made a statement earlier on about fear, um, and, and I want to ask you about that. But also, one of the things that I've been saying for, for many years now is I believe in something that I call the silent majority. And that's normal, everyday, dare we call them middle-class people, who want to get along. They want to be able to work. They want to be able to bring up their children. They want to build some kind of a lifestyle for themselves. And I'm talking about this majority across the board. And yet we still have this fear and we still don't really interact with each other. Is, is, this, is this a thing? Have you noticed this as well? Do we still have a lot of fear or is it just me that's feeling this? No, I think that's true. Um, and that's part of the work that I'm doing now as part of my consultancy, including society. You know, how do you create connectivity between people and dialogue? And, um, you know, we, you demystify the other. And you actually see that uh, we have a lot in common, right? Um, I think people are scared, but to me, fear is not a valid excuse, you know? There's so many scary things that we do in the world, but the, the fear never stops us from doing them. You know, if you think of getting into a car, if you think of the risks that we take, whether it's in our professional lives, personal lives, even having children, I think is a risk, but we do it anyway. So I think saying I'm scared, I understand that, but it's not justification for not uh, doing better and actually uh, reaching out to people and educating yourself and, um, you know, trying to empathize and put yourself in the position of other people and trying to understand them. And that's one of the things that I, I hope to accomplish with the book, that when someone reads it, you know, it's an honest account of what my worldview is. And I don't want people to be scared of that view. I wanted to incite a conversation and curiosity. And I want people to ask me the questions that you've been asking me and realizing that there's nothing to be scared of. You know, it's just relating to another human being. I've had the pleasure of doing that with so many um, acquaintances that I've met over the years who've had completely different life experiences. And I've met that with curiosity. I've never made, hopefully, I've never made anyone feel ashamed of being who they are. It's just about understanding how it is that people come to be who they are. And I think that, you know, um, I think people don't, don't have fear of the other. I think they sometimes have the fear of saying the wrong thing and the fear of the consequences of saying the wrong thing. And hopefully we can create an environment where the cost of being honest 
you know, uh, doesn't lead to someone being villainized and uh, rather leads to productive conversations. And, you know, honesty is not the same as recklessness and um, just pure hurtfulness in terms of some of the things that people say. But there are things that we haven't even discovered that are offensive to people. I'm learning every day that there's certain things that I can't say or do or whatever it is. And instead of feeling like, oh, I can never say anything. I must just keep quiet because I don't want to get into trouble. I try and strike up a conversation where I can understand more, you know, and educate myself more and actually find commonality with people that I perceive to be different. So, yes, uh, there is a fear that people have, but I don't think fear is a good enough excuse. Otherwise, you know, are you going to shut yourself off from the rest of the world? I think you just have to try, even if you make mistakes and if you pay for those mistakes, but at least um, you're doing something. Fantastic. We're almost out of time, Lando. So I've got I've got two questions for you. The first one being um, some advice for somebody who's listening either to this broadcast or to the, the, the podcast. What advice would you give them? And then the second part is what's next for Luando? Uh, um, I think the advice I would give to people is to, you know, I would encourage people to be visionaries and to be dreamers. Just imagine, you know, uh, have the audacity to imagine what South Africa can be, despite the evidence to the contrary. You know, um, I think when I think back to the 90s and, and you know, watching footage of Nelson Mandela being sworn in, and how not even just the country, but the rest of the world came together for that moment. If you look at Mandela's inauguration alone, even countries that were feuding with one another put that aside for that day. I don't think it can be a matter of putting it aside for the day, but I think we can actually sustain that. We can sustain our unity if we work at it like a muscle. So I think, you know, be visionaries that allow you to see beyond current circumstances, you know, paint a horizon for yourself. And, and try and live your, your life in a way that makes everything better than you found it, as cheesy as that sounds. And uh, whatever your talents are, they are useful, especially if you do them in service of the country. So whether you're creative or not, I, I think actually everyone is a creative, but whatever your calling is in life, I think if you do that with uh, care, and integrity, and if you work hard at your own craft, I think that automatically makes the world better. You know, LB Sachs says to me, I don't need for you to uh, dodge bombs like I used to. I just need for you to do your job well. So I would encourage everyone to just do their jobs well and with care, and I think the result of that automatically means South Africa is just a little bit better because of that. And then in terms of what's next for me, um, you know, I hope to, to still write. I hope to grow my business, including society, by creating more dialogues for my clients and more experiences that allow them to connect. Um, I want to be part of the conversation that will help turn our private institutions into ones where everyone can belong. That's what I'm currently focused on. And I think I want to continue my work at Constitution Hill 
our big ambition is to build a museum for the constitution at constitution hill where people can learn the unknown stories of how of how our constitution was negotiated and not just in the early 90s but its long history so yeah i hope to write another book i think the next one will be just a little bit more different but uh, right now my immediate concern is that i hope that what I have written, and I hope that the book itself can find resonance amongst um, South Africans, the people that I wrote it for, and even beyond our borders. I think that would be a true blessing for me. Wonderful stuff. Well, Luando, I can tell you that it is an amazing, in my opinion, an amazing piece of writing. Um, I would suggest you go out and get the book. It's available at all good bookstores. I believe it's available online as well. Uh, get the book, read it, and just start off your day and go, what can I do today? How can I make a difference today? Uh, my special guest, Luando Claso, thank you so much for taking the time out and having a chat to us. I love stories and I love us being able to tell stories. And hopefully this story will make a little bit of a difference in somebody's life. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There we go. That was my special guest, Luanda, uh, Luando Claso. And uh, we're talking about her book, Made in South Africa. That wraps it up for this episode of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, thank you for listening.